We are in Acts, the end of chapter 22, and then the first 11 verses of chapter 23. As Paul uh, exhorted you, or as, as John Maber exhorted you last week, uh, it is important to, to, to keep up uh, with, your, with reading through Acts at this point and, and keeping up with the sermons so that uh, we just sort of pick up as it were, in the middle of, uh, of the narrative, as you'll see this morning. And so I want to encourage you in that regard again. Um, we're following Paul as he makes his way to Rome at this point. Uh, before we read God's holy word, let's ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Lord God, help us now to turn our hearts and our attention fully to you. We pray that you would silence any voices in us but your own, that we might hear what you will speak through the power of your Holy Spirit, for you speak peace to your people through Christ our Lord. Amen. So Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 30 and continuing on through verse 11 of chapter 23, hear the word of the Lord, it is written. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he, Paul, was being accused by the Jews, he, the Roman tribune, unbound him, Paul, and commanded the chief priests and all the council, that is the Sanhedrin, to meet. And he, the Roman tribune, brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, he cried out to the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, So you must testify also in Rome. 
To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In Matthew 10, Jesus is recorded sending his disciples out as missionaries, saying to them, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. How do you like that as a word of encouragement? There is an acknowledgement here that the followers of Jesus are sent out into a very dark and depraved world, a, a world wrought with dangers, a world in which they would be vulnerable. And Jesus went on to warn his followers, beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them in the Gentiles. Jesus, who was apparently completely unconcerned with marketing techniques, told his followers that they could expect to be treated as he was treated. This was an ominous warning that Acts proves would quickly come to reality. These verses from Matthew stand to remind every Christian that if he or she is living as a true follower of Jesus Christ, that suffering in some shape or form will eventually come. Now, it is possible to be so comfortable with the world and to accommodate ourselves to it to such a degree that we will face little to no difficulty. But for anyone who truly commits himself or herself to following Jesus Christ, trouble awaits from a world that is opposed to who God has revealed himself to be in his word and in his perfect revelation in Jesus Christ. If we do truly concern ourselves with God's kingdom, if we seek to live as faithful citizens of it and seek to live in obedience to God's word and to Jesus Christ, then we can anticipate discovering the reality of Jesus' words for ourselves. There will be confrontation and conflict. So as a great J.C. Ryle commented, the truths contained in these verses should be pondered by all who try to do good in the world. To the selfish man who cares for nothing but his own ease or comfort, there may seem to be little in them. But to the minister of the gospel and to everyone who seeks to save souls, these verses ought to be full of interest. But as we concern ourselves with these words, we shouldn't miss that tucked in between this sending and this warning is this command from Jesus. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Well, that is quite a pairing, isn't it? A dove is a symbol of peace, of, of good tidings. But the image we have in Scripture of a ser serpent is typically not considered to be something that we should imitate. It is of a cunningly shrewd creature, a crafty creature. But in balancing the serpent with the dove, Jesus is saying that even as his followers would be vulnerable, they didn't have to be senselessly vulnerable. Jesus is telling them here that it is possible to be shrewd, but not sinful. 
It's possible to be cunning without a destructive hatefulness in our hearts. It's possible to be like a serpent without the malice, without carrying poison under our tongue. Well, what might this look like, we might wonder. And this is why J.C. Ryle states that there are few of our Lord's instructions which it is so difficult to use rightly as this one, to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Ryle goes on to explain the difficulty. There is a line marked out for us between two extremes, a line that requires great judgment to define, to avoid persecution by holding our tongues and keeping our religion entirely to ourselves is one extreme. We are not to err in that direction. To court persecution and thrust our religion upon everyone we meet without regard to time, place, or circumstances is another extreme. In this direction also we are warned not to err any more than the other. So how do we know what to do? How do we live in between these two ditches, especially in a world that can be so hostile to God's truth? Well, we must ask God for wisdom. We don't want to act in cowardice. We don't want to act in a way to to have an attitude that it's no use in trying to proclaim the gospel to certain people. We should be eager and bold to speak and live the gospel. But we also don't want to to live with a zealousness that is beyond biblical instruction and, and would create needless offense and opposition. What we should want to know is when and how to stand our ground and when and how to hold our tongue. We should want to know when it is proper to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel and when it is acceptable to flee from persecution. The good news is that God has revealed to us wisdom for these sorts of circumstances through the testimony of Scripture. And here we have a passage in Acts that not only affirms what Jesus spoke to his followers about giving delivered over to the courts and dragged before governing authorities, but it's also providing for us here a faithful witness about how to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Paul here in Acts 23 is exhibit A. Now, we know from last week that Paul had been in Roman custody, although the Roman tribune had been unable to determine a charge against Paul to continue to hold him. There had been no definite charge when Paul had been arrested in the temple in the middle of being beaten. And so the tribune had decided that he could figure it out by... flogging Paul to get Paul to reveal the information himself, but that idea was quickly dismissed when it was realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, so it was illegal to flog Paul. So running out of options, the tribune decided that he would try another avenue, calling together the Sanhedrin to try Paul in hopes of getting a clear accusation against him. So Paul here is brought before the council. And Luke records that Paul was the first to speak. 
Now, his opening words, a, a statement that he had lived his life before God in all good conscience, it, it might appear to us as being rather innocuous. It might simply appear that he was claiming innocence. He was entering a, a not guilty plea before the court, if you will. But that wasn't at all what was going on. Paul, in claiming to have lived his life with a clear conscience, was making a claim to have been faithful to God in his conduct in every respect. Now, I don't think we need to get into how Paul could honestly say this, considering the reality that he had been active himself in persecuting Christians earlier in his life. But what Paul was really speaking to here in this moment had specifically to do with his Christian faith. And if Paul's life as a Christian had left him blameless before God, if Paul had been faithful to God by seeking to obey Jesus Christ, then those on the council who did not share in Paul's conviction that Jesus Christ was Lord, who did not worship and serve Christ, were not blameless. This was a provocation that amounted to blasphemy, which is why Ananias, the high priest, who was already prone to violence, responded by having Paul punched in the mouth. Now, there are many differing views about what happened next. And there are no few commentators who, in my humble opinion, are quick to say that Paul responded in sinful anger to Ananias. It seems that there are many who are bothered by what appears to be a very sharp response by Paul. And perhaps we are bothered by Paul's response. Anyhow, those who make this claim that Paul responded in a sinful manner support it in part by calling attention to the fact that Paul seemed to correct himself when it was brought to his attention that he was speaking to the high priest. And a plain reading of the text does seem to indicate that Paul didn't realize who he was speaking to. But I want to ask this question. Is that really what we find in this passage? Is that really what we find in this passage? Now, I've already stated that I believe Paul is giving witness in this passage to what it looks like to be as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. So allow me to demonstrate why this is the case. Let's begin with this. Some who hold that Paul spoke inappropriately to Ananias try to explain how this could have been the case that he did not know who Ananias was. One argument is that Paul had bad eyesight. It's thought that Paul suffered from some eye affliction, perhaps because of his blinding encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Paul does make comments in his letter to the Galatians that contribute to this belief. For instance, he notes in chapter 4 of Galatians that he suffered from a physical infirmity. And he says that the Galatians would have given, them their own, given him their own eyes to help him if it were possible. And later in the letter, he points out the big letters that he used to write his letters. Perhaps because he couldn't see to write small letters. Therefore, perhaps Paul just couldn't see who was before him. And in a moment of weakness, he lashed out in anger. Another argument is that Paul had, been, had not been in Jerusalem in some time. So 
he would have never seen Ananias. How would he know who he was looking at even if he could see properly? An eye affliction and a lack of personal knowledge of the members of the Sanhedrin are both fair considerations. Neither of these would have justified his supposed sin, but would explain why he seemingly acted with such indiscretion. But let's look at the details that Luke gives us. Chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council. The first thing we are told is that Paul fixed his eyes on them. He stared them down which seems to indicate that he could see them well enough and was sizing them up. Second, I want us to make a few assumptions. First, I'm going to assume that the tribune had told Paul where he was taking him. Second, I'm going to assume that Paul would have known, even if the tribune didn't say anything to him, the council in Jerusalem, which would have been responsible for judging his case. Third, I am going to assume that Paul would have known who presided over that council, the Sanhedrin. Fourth, I'm going to assume that even if the high priest wasn't the one presiding over the Sanhedrin, which would have been very unusual, that Paul was still aware that he was speaking to someone in authority. If it was the high priest, though, and he was dressed as the high priest, Paul would not have just been able to see him. He would have been able to hear him as well, since the high priest's ephod had bells attached to the hem. It would have been unmistakable. Regardless, I think that there is very, very good reason to believe Paul did know who he was speaking to and spoke intentionally. Moreover, I think that we should look closely at what Paul said here in response to being struck. He called out Ananias for his hypocrisy, calling him a whitewashed wall. Paul pointed out that in striking him without any verdict being given, without deliberation even having taken place, that Ananias was thus rendering judgment. And this was not in accordance with the Jewish law. It was Ananias then who had broken the law, not Paul. And consider this, where does the phrase whitewashed wall come from? It comes from the prophet Ezekiel. Concerning false prophets, God speaks through Ezekiel saying that those who are speaking peace when there is no peace are like those who would paint whitewash on a decayed and crumbling wall, a wall bound to be destroyed by the next storm. And the Lord states, and I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. Well, paint will make almost anything look better, right? It can cover up the internal decay and rot, but eventually the rot is exposed. And Paul here is exposing the rot, calling Ananias a hypocrite. There was Ananias. Can you picture him? 
standing before Paul in his role as the high priest, perhaps even dressed in his, in his vestments. And he stood there as the one who represented God to his people, dressed as the one whose role it was to intercede before God for his people. Ananias was pretending to be something that he really wasn't. He had no intention to act justly. He had no intention to uphold God's law out of his love for God. He had no intention to earnestly seek the things of of God. Paul was having none of it and stood with bold defiance against the one who had proven himself to be in defiance to God. It wasn't about being sinfully disrespectful, but about calling out that Ananias, who was unworthy of his office he held, which even his own people recognized this, Paul was speaking out against Ananias' corruption. But consider one other thing. How did Jesus speak to the religious leaders? Well, in Matthew 23, Jesus spoke seven harsh judgments against the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's one of them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Was Jesus being sinful when he spoke to them in this way? Hopefully, none of us would say that Jesus ever sinned in any way. But perhaps Jesus wasn't always as meek and mild as he is often portrayed. But then how do we explain Paul's response to the council questioning his reviling of the high priest? Was Paul lying that he did not know that it was the high priest? And and what do we make of his quoting the law concerning respecting those in positions of authority? Well, again, we can take it quite literally to mean that Paul really didn't know that he was speaking to the high priest. But as I have already argued, this doesn't make much sense, for at the very least, Paul knew he was speaking to someone in authority. What makes better sense here is that Paul was speaking with bitter irony. That what he was really saying was that it was hard to recognize the high priest when his conduct was not in accordance with his office. In other words, what Paul meant was, I did not think that a man who could give such an unlawful order could be the high priest. Paul then quoted the law to acknowledge that one isn't to speak evil against a ruler. But was Paul really speaking evil against the high priest? Was he saying something false against him? Well, not at all. Paul had plenty of respect for the office of high priest and any other governing official. But that did not mean that he had to lay himself down before one who was abusing his power in defiance against God. And Ananias was well known to be one of the worst high priests. He was a greedy and violent man, as recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus. And by the way, Ananias was killed at the hands of his own people a few years later, fulfilling what Paul said. So do we see something different from Paul here? Paul was was usually very patient. He was usually very compassionate, very gentle with people. 
He usually displayed a profound willingness to suffer in order that people might be exposed to the gospel. Paul endured much abuse at the hands of lost sinners to whom he was attempting to minister. We've just seen that in the previous chapters. But those qualities of patience and gentleness are not seen here. We should remember, though, that Jesus, too, even as he had great patience and compassion on the vast majority of lost sinners, was harsh with the religious leaders. And it was because they were abusing their positions, positions that were meant to shepherd the people of God, that were meant to to feed God's people, protect them from error. Instead, they led them astray and brought on them disaster. Jesus would not tolerate it, and it turns out that neither would Paul. It would be odd then to call Paul's actions sinful when he was actually following in the way of Jesus. And as Paul sits back at the barracks that evening, perhaps discouraged by how this all has played out, Jesus appears to him and encourages him, urging him to take courage telling him that he has given faithful witness in Jerusalem and would be used to do the same in Rome. This is not chastisement from the Lord for sinful behavior. It was encouragement from the Lord in light of Paul using wisdom and boldness. And what Paul recognized here was that there was very little chance that he would get a fair trial before this Jewish court. It was a kangaroo court. Paul knew it. And he was not timid to speak the reality of that moment and bring it to light for all to blindly see. The Sanhedrin was making a mockery of God's law. Paul simply pointed it out. At this point, Paul was not positioned to be given a fair shake anyhow. But notice what happens next. Paul was not finished. In fact, he was just getting going and had only set the stage for his next act of cunning shrewdness. Recognizing that he was in the midst of both Sadducees and Pharisees, Paul now appealed to the Pharisees, identifying himself with them as a Pharisee. Then he proceeded to pull the pen out of the theological hand grenade and toss it into the council. What was this hand grenade? It was the issue of the resurrection which, as Luke notes here for us, the Sadducees denied. Beloved, do you see what Paul has done? This is the wisdom of a serpent and the innocence of a dove. Paul saw this as an opportunity to turn the tables on the Sanhedrin, taking the target off of himself and creating division among them. A house divided easily falls. But that wasn't the only thing Paul was after. It wasn't even the most important thing that he was after. Paul isn't simply trying to avoid persecution by collapsing the court. You see, Paul had been arrested. Paul had been beaten under the pretense of bringing a Gentile into the courts of the temple. But that wasn't the real issue. It wasn't even true. And the charge against Paul hadn't even come up yet. So Paul went ahead and pointed out what the real issue was. The real issue was the resurrection. Paul wanted to raise the issue of whether it was possible that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. This is what the Christians had been proclaiming. It was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that vindicated Jesus' ministry and affirmed that he was indeed the Messiah. Not only this, the resurrection is at the heart of the Christian gospel. 
Paul says so himself in 1 Corinthians 15. He states that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then our faith is futile. It is the reality to which we look and receive hope. And it was this very issue that got the Christians in trouble with the Sadducees all the way back in the fourth chapter of Acts, where we read that they were greatly annoyed. The Sadducees were greatly annoyed that these people, the Christians, were teaching and preaching that in Jesus there is resurrection from the dead. But Paul, who was playing 4D chess here, used this as an opportunity to tell the Pharisees that Jesus was the forerunner of the resurrection for which they had hoped. Their tradition implied this truth, and Paul was confronting them with it and challenging them to come out of their comfortable orthodoxy, which had led them to deny who Jesus was and is for us. And notice how all of a sudden the Pharisees began defending Paul, at least before things utterly deteriorated to the point that the tribune had to send his soldiers to rescue Paul from the dissension among the council, which had turned violent. But the point is, Paul got to the gospel here in a very wise and crafty way. And we can learn a couple of valuable lessons here from the Apostle Paul. Lessons about what it means to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So first, Christians are to act with patience and compassion and gentleness in proclaiming the gospel to the lost and dying to lost and dying sinners. Christians are to display love even to their enemies. Jesus commanded this of us. The apostle Paul himself stated that we are to bless those who persecute us and not curse them. Christians are to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel and are to count it a joy when they are persecuted for the sake of Jesus. But But, dearly beloved, that doesn't mean that Christianity is a religion of passive quietism. Christians can be both willing to endure suffering and vocal in their opposition to their mistreatment. We don't go looking for it, but there are times when we need to let our voices be heard and we need to hold no punches. That doesn't give us license to be angry and to sin, but we can be bold and straightforward in our speech. And this is where many get Christianity wrong. Many want to portray Jesus as a strict pacifist who never spoke a harsh word. They want to portray Paul to be the same. And they want to conclude that any Christian who doesn't quietly endure suffering isn't acting in a Christian manner. We need to understand that this is just not the case. Jesus said to be wise as serpents, and this means that there will be times at which we need to practice cunning shrewdness, not out of hatred, not out of malice, but there are times in which it is not only appropriate, but necessary for us to bring to light injustice. There are moments when we should speak truth to those in positions of power. There are occasions when we should proclaim the warning of God's coming judgment to those who are acting in open defiance against God in his truth. And it is entirely appropriate for Christians to defend themselves in this way. Christians are allowed to make an appeal to the law as we saw Paul do also last Sunday. 
and to call out those who are in positions of authority who are acting hypocritically. The day is coming, brothers and sisters, and is already here when believers will have charges brought against them, charges of hate crimes, charges of discrimination, because we do not follow the world in its death spiral of sin, which rejects the created order, which not only rejects spiritual realities, but even rejects obvious biological realities in an effort to live apart from God. We will be brought to court. Christian businesses will be threatened. A Christian's right to freely practice religion and the right to free speech will be threatened. We have already seen these things. And what Paul demonstrates for us here is that Christians do not have to lay down and take the abuse. Christians can stand their ground. They can appeal to their rights under the law. What we find here is that Paul is willing to suffer abuse for the sake of the gospel and also willing to make an appeal to his rights. And we can do the same. And we mustn't feel guilty for this. We mustn't feel as though we have failed Christ somehow when we speak boldly and straightforwardly. Secondly, we need to understand that too often we are allowing the world to control the conversation. Which means we are often doing nothing more than talking about moral issues. This is much of the content of the church's debate with the secular world. We inevitably end up discussing issues like abortion and homosexuality. And we end up playing defense for our values. I'm in no way saying that it's a bad thing to take a stand for these Christian values. But here's the reality. The deeper issue is that the world denies spiritual things. It denies that there is anything beyond the material world, at least anything objective. And this is why we see a lot of the moral decay in our culture. So we need to push beyond the the material and the moral, and we need to get to the underlying spiritual issues. This is the cleverness of what Paul did in shifting the conversation. We need to be able to do the same thing. We need to be able to get beyond the presenting issue and ask the deeper questions. Push to acknowledge the foundational principles. Challenge people to question their own underlying assumptions. And we can find points at which we can connect with people. For instance, people seem to be very concerned with justice. Jacob talked about that this morning in Sunday school, racial justice, environmental justice, justice for groups that have been deemed to be oppressed and discriminated against. Brothers and sisters, justice isn't a bad thing. God is a God of justice. This is something that we can connect with people on because we should be concerned for justice too as God's people. But here's the big question. Who's justice? Who's justice? What is the basis for justice? It, is it just our subjective ideas or is there some higher authority to whom we are accountable and from whom is a foundation for moral action? And you see, we can pretty quickly move from justice to God. So I pray that we would use wisdom in situations like this. And that we would, in fact, get to the gospel. The world is dying to hear it. Let's be eager to share it and bold in our proclamation. Let's learn from Paul here how to be wise as serpents 
and innocent as doves. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving for us your word. We thank you for the truth that we find in it. We thank you for the wisdom we find in it. Lord, we pray that by your spirit that these truths, these wisdoms would be applied to our hearts, that we would, Lord, be able to to not just build up head knowledge about you, Lord, but that we would grow in relationship and that we would be able to, Lord, understand how to apply all that we learn from your word. And Lord, help us as we go out into the world where we are sheep among wolves. Lord, help us to understand that we don't have to be senselessly vulnerable. So Lord, help us to go forth, to proclaim your gospel boldly, proclaim your gospel straightforwardly. Lord, but help us to know when to speak and when to be silent and what to speak. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe. 